You're listening to the DIY Recording Guys podcast, your one-stop information source for DIY music production, with your hosts, Fadim Karaz and Benjamin Hall. Welcome, everyone, to another exciting episode of the DIY Recording Guys podcast. As always, I'm your host, Benjamin Hall from DreamLot Studio. And I'm Vadim from Calm Frog Recording, and this is our our morning voices. We don't usually... Re- this might be the first episode we've ever recorded in the morning. I think it is. I'm really feeling it. <laughs> <laughs> I feel it too. I almost I almost said welcome to... Oh, I just peaked my audio, so I got to turn my gain down a little bit. But uh, See, there you go. Yeah. Um, Man, amateurs in the morning. Check mine now that you said that. I almost, I almost said, uh, I'm Ben from Calm Frog Recording because I'm so used to you. Do your intro first. <laughs> <laughs> weird. That is weird. And we're here on. Uh, I'm, I'm actually traveling. I'm at um, a nice little lake house with a nice frozen lake next to it. And I was just telling you, Ben, that my back is a little sore from all the snow clearing but we were able to do some ice skating yesterday which is very awesome which is nice it's nice ice skating on a lake if you've never had a chance to try it never have never have once you get over the terror of the ice cracking and yeah falling into freezing water once you get over that terror <laughs> it's it's really pleasant i'm sure it is you know it would really i would be able to do it but what really freaks me out is like you see those crystal clear lakes like over in Norway and Sweden where you can see like yeah. the cracks that go down like hundreds of feet into the lake or whatever it is that would just terrify me just being able to see that yeah I don't think I could deal with it <laughs> I will say I was like launching rocks onto it before stepping down onto yeah, it just, and just just to see how solid it was the ice is really solid and then we got like we even got like a snowblower down there oh really but uh yeah, but I, it only took like an hour to break that because there was too much snow. So, so now I have a broken snowblower oh. I got to fix. Ouch. But anyway, that's that's for another DIY podcast. Yeah. <laughs> I was doing some snow sports yesterday too. Me and my wife, we went up to the local ski resort. It's my first time in two years. Oh, wow. How'd it go? It went really good. Um, the conditions were awesome. I didn't fall that much. I fell enough to be sore today. <laughs> but I'm like a... I'm a little bit of an adrenaline junkie on the slope, so I push it probably harder than I should. Oh, are you doing like terrain park stuff? No, no, I'm not that good to do stuff like that. I just like tear down the mountain probably faster than I should. <laughs> right, right, right. That is that is fun. So, my man, what's our episode about today? We are going to talk about problem solving, the importance of it, how it can help you in the studio, and maybe giving giving our very unique takes on problem solving i know for for me i pull a lot from my past life of being an engineer slash chemist at my other jobs and in school mm-hmm. i definitely use that part of my brain to help me uh problem solve in the studio and i'm sure the same is similar for you yeah definitely i feel like troubleshooting and problem solving are skills that translate really well across different areas of your life. So if you're if you can troubleshoot your stereo system or your video game system or your car, a lot of those same approaches will help you in the studio. So yes, I agree with you as well. I split my notes up into kind of three broader sections where I said pre-session or like preparation for session and then I said during the session and then I had like a post session like some some tips and tricks for for troubleshooting how did you break yours up mine is pretty much entirely philosophical i don't really have any like (laughs) okay i don't have really any too much practical stuff until the very end well you know what they say ben theory and practice are like two wings of a bird and and you need both of them for that bird to fly so so why don't you get us started with some some philosophy sure absolutely so um I was thinking about this episode and I know that back on episode 51, we mentioned that critical listening, that was our episode on critical listening. We mentioned that Mm -hmm. that was the most important skill you can cultivate as a DIY producer or recording engineer. But I actually think that this skill is even more important than the critical listening, the problem solving. Wow. Okay. Yeah. You know, as we can see 
technology evolving, um, there's more, and this is a good thing, there's more automation, more tasks that robots or computers can do. So it really helps from a recording and do-it-yourself mixing perspective because instead of maybe doing so many menial tasks, you can give that to a program that can do it automatically. It saves us time, energy, money. But uh, taking that in mind, we're still always going to need a human behind the machine that could problem solve things whenever they don't work quite right. Or maybe you're not mm. getting the, uh, maybe the tool that you're using that's supposed to help you is just not giving you the results that you need. And so you need a human brain behind that with these problem solving skills that can help you either figure out how can I get this tool to work the way I want it to, or do I need to use another tool entirely? Yeah, that's a good point. And you're absolutely right that these systems are making our lives easier really across the board. And they're great when they work. But the more complexity, the more we try to automate and the more complexity we add, the more complicated our mixes get, the more plugins we're using, the more opportunities there are for things to go wrong. You think about your chain and you have more and more links in the chain. Well, it might, it's going to get harder and harder to find that that weakest link. So I think you're right. Troubleshooting is a skill that we will always have a need for, but I will just add that critical listening is actually an important part of troubleshooting, right? Yeah. It's a skill you need in order to troubleshoot many of the issues that we'll touch on today. So I'm not going to disagree with you. I'll just say they're orthogonal. They're, yeah. <laughs> you need both. You need one to do the other. So yeah, but good, uh, good intro. Thanks, man. <laughs> well, I'm sure, you know, we can we can go back and forth. And I'm sure when I start going through some of my notes, you will have a lot of light bulbs going yeah, on. Yeah, I and, think so too. Things to add as well. So um, I guess we can dive in there. What's just out of curiosity, though, what's your next note? <clears throat> Maybe I can mention something else too here before we dive into yeah. those. I was thinking about this episode and in preparation for it. And the idea came to me that problem solving is kind of like your brain's working memory. And so Hmm. when you're in that, that working memory state of mind, you're not being creative. So whenever I, whenever you think of being a musician or creating something, there's like two sides of the brain that are really important. And That's like the task-oriented side of your brain and then the creative side of your brain. And you really need both to be a good DIY musician, DIY engineer. So the interesting thing about this is it's not very efficient to be jumping back and forth between the creative state of mind or flow state and your uh, task-oriented or working memory state of mind. So in thinking about this, I think it's a good idea to at least at first recognize when you're in that uh, task-oriented state of mind Mm. and whenever you're not, when you're being creative, because if you can maybe isolate all of the task work up front or relegated to a certain amount of time, then you can shut that side of your brain off and then just be entirely creative because being in that working memory state of mind is very taxing on your brain. Like, I know you've probably experienced this, Vadim, but doing a, a really long session with a band, like I'm exhausted at the end of the day because I'm using those problem-solving uh, skills for an extended period of time. And even though I might be sitting in a chair, I just feel completely, even physically worn out from using my brain that much. So. Sometimes you can't get away from those marathon sessions, but I think it's a good idea to limit that as much as possible because it's going to give you a lot more, it's going to help you conserve your energy throughout, you know, a project or throughout the day and help you avoid burnout. Yeah, that's a good point. I I think the, the problem with that might be that troubleshooting or debugging or something like that is not something we really choose to do very often because it 
some you know i wasn't plan i was planning on just recording a guitar but like yeah, now yeah. i have a hum and i have to figure out what that is but what i take away from what you just said is that you can help yourself maybe for example by doing some of that troubleshooting in advance so maybe it's like a yeah, sound check a great- during a live show maybe you plug everything in and do a couple of test recordings and you're in the mindset of i'm a technician right now but I'm gonna. I'm not gonna record today. I'm just gonna get everything set up and ready. And tomorrow, I'm a guitarist. And tomorrow, I'm recording. And so, by doing some of that legwork up front, you've now freed up what you're. You know, you're saying the creative part of your brain for the creative fun work, and you won't have to deal with the technical challenges, or at least as many of them. Yeah, exactly. I think one of the biggest things that I've learned from having my own studio business is that it just really you can't get away with. Prog- procrastination like you maybe can with <laughs> with other jobs like and we're all guilty of this at one time or another where we'll say you know what instead of prepping for a session tonight because i'm tired i'll just do it in the morning an hour before the artist shows up and that that is just mm-hmm. a recipe for disaster because i've had enough situations happen where you know you're sweating to get like a hard drive to run that's just not working and it just has scared me to the point where I just never allow that to happen anymore. And so I think what yeah, you just said is I great. Think that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. And this, this kind of ties into my, my first section of notes here, which is good, good. preparation or, or what you do in advance. And some of the things I was thinking about, I actually learned this. This first bit of advice is something that I never do <laughs> for myself, which is bad. But I learned this from watching uh, people do debugging during software programming, or you know, mm. people who do coding or programming. Debugging is a huge part of that process, and the way they approach it is by building code in chunks and testing those chunks, and then when it works, then they build on top of that because it's easier to troubleshoot when you have a smaller chain. When you have less links in the chain, it's easier to do the troubleshooting. Brilliant. And so. Well, how does this apply to recording? Well, you may have like some kind of signal chain you're trying you're setting up, or you're miking a drum kit, or whatever you're doing that's complex that has a lot of different pieces. My tendency, and this is bad, but mm-hmm. my tendency is to try and plug everything in the way I envisioned it in my head. So I might have a hundred pieces in my chain. Then I press the on button and then it doesn't work. And then I'm like, hmm, which one of these hundred pieces is responsible? Where instead, you, the way to do it might be to build that signal chain up piece by piece. So like, okay, my yeah. computer's working. I'm just going to plug a microphone directly into the interface. All right, the interface works. All right, now I'm going to add stuff in between or whatever I'm doing there. And that's a quicker way to identify a problem when you run into one. We're going to get into some ways if you didn't do that, like I don't do that. We're going to get into some other ways to to troubleshoot that. Uh, But that's just one note on preparation and building up complex recording setups. You got anything to add on that? Yeah, that's great. That's super great advice. That especially helps whenever you're in like a crunch situation and you get flustered. That's the that's absolutely the first thing you should do to help keep yourself calm. Cause I've been, I can remember being on tour and just from throwing things in the back of a van, getting them out, putting them on a stage, just stuff like shakes loose, even from the van driving and Mm -hmm. everything worked the night before everything worked at your sound check. And then you have to throw your stuff on stage and you have a 15 minute changeover. And then all of a sudden, your bass rig is just not making any sound. And your first thought is panic. What's going wrong? And it kind of, I mean, I'm a pretty methodical organized person, but even for me, just that urgency just completely fried my brain. And thankfully, the mm. um, my guitar player, who's had a lot of experience and um, just in those kind of a situations, because he was a guitar tech for a while, he just very calmly came over and said, okay, plug your bass directly into the amp. Does it play? Then we know that it's not the bass. All right, plug each pedal in. And then that's how you figure out, you know, where is the break in, in the chain? Exactly. So yeah, it's awesome advice. 
And, and, and I love that point too, because that is in a session, uh, similarly to on stage, I'm not sure where the stakes are higher, maybe on stage, but that, that initial panic is crippling in a sense. And this is where some of these tips and tricks that we're going to go through will, uh, like exactly like you said, will help keep you calm and be like, okay, well, I'm just going to start at point A and I'm going to move down the chain and see what's going on. Yeah. That's actually, that actually ties in well with what I have next here, which is, uh, let's say you do have your chain, you turn it on, things aren't working for whatever reason. I, I'm just going to give two approaches here uh, that both work well, uh, just two different approaches. One approach is to start at the beginning of the chain and move your way down. So you can start by eliminating, let's say, okay, I'm going to just change my bass guitar. Everything else is the same, but I'm just going to change basses. Now, does it make a sound, right? And then if the answer is still no, then okay, it probably wasn't the bass. Then you keep moving down that chain. I'm going to replace a cable. I'm going to replace this pedal. I'm just going to remove it or whatever. So you can work your way down a chain like that, um, which works really well because it's a methodical approach. Again, you well, in five minutes, you'll figure it out. Or another approach is to kind of right away replace half the chain. So I'm going to take my pedal board and instead of plugging it into my amp rig, I'm just going to plug it into this other amp that I have or whatever and see if that works. And that, that way you've ruled out half the chain, let's say, right away. Yeah. And then you can focus on the half that is remaining as problematic. What, which approach or, or is there a different approach that you typically prefer? I like to work my way down the chain. And if at all possible, like if it's, I mean, if it's really crunch and you just don't have time to maybe go through the whole process, uh, I focus on the most important parts of the chain because, mm -hmm. so going back to my live show example, it would really suck to not use my pedal board, but if need be, I could just play right into an amp. It's not going to sound the same, but I can't play if my, uh, if my bass itself isn't working then it doesn't matter if the rest of the pedals are. So I'm going to test right. the most important elements first. Like I could throw off the... That makes sense. I could throw off the phaser and the octave pedal. I don't need that to play a show. But I need the distortion right. and compress compressor. So I would, I would test the most important elements in the chain, even if they weren't the first things in the chain, if that makes sense. Gotcha. Yep, absolutely. You're doing a triage. You're you're picking what is critical, most critical, and then you're you're working from there. So yeah, that that makes a lot of sense to me. I I like that way too. Generally, either start with the major components, or just be super methodical if I have the time and just go down the line. And I've had this happen with like a, a vocal chain or something like that with just with hiss, oh bad yeah. hiss, and trying to troubleshoot that. And and this is a great way to do it. Is you can start, and you could start at either end. You know, you could start at the preamp and try a different preamp channel, and then you know, kind of work your way down there. And for me, it ended up being a bad cable, and I found that just by again being methodical and not ripping my hair out and just yeah. changing one component at a time. So that I think that's a great approach. We recently did this with um, over the phone with our guitar player from Nafel's um, recording setup because he messaged me and said. Hey, I'm getting hiss in all of my, like really bad hiss in all of my DI tracks. Doesn't mm. matter if I'm recording on my desktop, on my laptop, doesn't matter the guitar, I just get a consistent hiss the entire time. So mm. we started going through the first things in the chain that made sense to me. Like the first thing that came up in my head actually was you know, since it's consistent through all of your devices, do you have dirty power? Are you plugging into a power conditioner or is there a grounding issue? And we quickly got past that because he said, it doesn't matter if I'm, if I'm running my laptop on the battery, I still have this problem. And so what we determined now there was varying, the, the problem varied in different degrees from bad to really bad depending on the guitar he was playing through so i was thinking that the guitars he have with single coil pickups were noisier and made the hum like way worse than the humbuckers but it's mm -hmm. but it still was there regardless and so we, we still haven't fixed the problem but what i think it might be unfortunately is just a lot of radio interference 
in his house. And so I don't hmm. necessarily know the way to fix that other than maybe some shielding or things like that. But that was one of those trickier ones. But like, like you just said, we went through each methodical step. Is it, is it the guitar you're playing through? No, it happens on every guitar. Okay. The chances that all your guitars are messed up is really low. Uh, is it what you're plugged into? Okay, you're not even, you're just running on battery. That's not it. So like you said, just being methodical. Yeah, that that's an interesting one. Um, I, yeah, my my gears are turning as well. But yeah, that's that sounds like the right approach there. Um, there's a couple of things that'll help you prepare for this kind of approach. Like one thing that helps a lot is to label your cables at both ends. If you have any kind of complex cabling situation, like for example, multiple mic setups, having those cables, I've seen them labeled by color, so you can just buy like different color electrical tape, or you can actually just use like masking tape and write a number on them. Yeah. But if you just have a bunch of black cables with silver tips and you're like, uh, where does this one plug into on the other end? That is doable but it's going to make you more frustrated whereas if you took the time in advance to say like this cable is labeled one at both ends and that's the cable i use for my kick drum always well that's a lot of an easier problem you know you could say i'm going to just swap cable one for a, for a new cable and see if that was the problem so labeling your cables uh some kind of way and i've seen a really cool one like i said with just you can buy these rolls of different color electrical tape and it's just red blue, green, yellow, mm. and, and so on. And you can just uh, go through your cables very quickly. It makes your troubleshooting process a little bit smoother. And to that end, you know, you can also write things down, which, you know, what you used on a previous session, like I used this microphone with this cable. Uh, you know, you can decide how meticulous you want to get here. But having those types of references, again, if you do run into a problem, which eventually you will, we all do, then it gives you some resources to say, well, what did I use last time? What, yeah. You know, is this cable, was this cable fine last time? And it kind of helps you chase through some of these, these snakes. Yeah. Funny you say that. I, I was going to suggest buy a snake. If you, if, <laughs> if you guys don't know what a snake is, it basically is, um, it bundles together a grouping, it can be eight to 24 to 36 um, cables in one, and it goes down to uh, a box essentially where you can plug in each of your individual um, XLR cables going to your mic. So that way it does two things. One, it helps your cables from getting super tangled, helps you manage better, and you can use shorter xlr uh mic cables on on the back end to plug into you don't need as much yeah, length super helpful for things like drums and i even use it for just connecting pieces of gear i have little snakes so snake is basically like a bundle of cables like you said with just a you know grouping of connectors on on the end and i have uh, one that is just trs balanced cables to trs balanced cables but there's just a bunch of them wrapped up in a nice, neat yeah. bundle with different colors, and that way I know exactly what's going where, and it works really well. So that's a that's a good suggestion. I like the idea of wrapping the color coded tape more than necessarily labeling or numbering. I guess the numbering could work. I got into this problem when I first started to mic drums. Is that okay? This is going to be my kick drum cable, and I, I labeled it by the drums I was. Um, miking up. Well, then the problem was mm -hmm. is that the next session I didn't want to use those same XLRs right. for the same instrument. So then I got into this stupid problem of saying, okay, the kick drum XLR is plugged into the snare, and you just don't want to get into that kind of yeah, doing that gymnastics. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's bad. Definitely. Yeah, that's a good point. So using some kind of agnostic, yes, uh, instrument agnostic labeling is is important. Um. Okay, my my next uh, step is the, during the recording. So okay. some some things to to consider. Uh, one is if you're recording anything with microphones, it's important to listen back early. And this is one of you know one of the only times, one of the most important times to listen in solo. 
because if there's problems with that raw signal, uh, you want to catch them as quickly as you can before you've sunk a lot of takes mm. into it. Um, so some things that can come up that you may hear if you listen back, for example, clicks and pops. If there's clicks and pops in the recording, um, it could be a buffer size thing, which you can go back to lis and listen to episode 54 to learn about buffer size and, and latency. It could be a clock mismatch, which is if you're using two digital devices and the clocks are not set to the same sample rate, you will reliably get clicks and pops. I, that happens to me all the time because I just didn't, I forget to sync my clocks between two digital devices I have. And luckily I know to catch it. I know to listen back and make sure that I, I, uh, I don't make that mistake again. I'm, cu I'm curious, what is that situation? Is it a piece of gear that you're sometimes not connecting and you, you have to reconnect it? Okay, that's why. Exactly. So I use, um, when we record, for example, the podcast, well, actually, anytime I use microphones, I plug those microphones into a uh, interface. It's not an interface. It's a preamp, but the preamp has digital converters in it. And then I use a digital connection from that preamp to my main interface, which is connected to my computer. Okay. So when I'm mixing, for example, then I'm not even using the preamp. I'm using the clock on the interface for, for everything. But when I'm recording, because my digital conversion for my microphones is happening in the preamp, then I set my interface clock to sync to my preamp clock. Right. And if, if those two clocks don't match or if they're using their independent clocks, then you get weird pops and clicks and jitters and all kinds of stuff that you don't want. So I need to be careful about that when I'm doing uh, recordings. So I have two interfaces plugged in at once and they're always synced up. So I don't have to think about it. I was just curious about yeah, that. Yeah, if you're always, right, if you're not changing your setup, that makes sense. You don't have to think about it. Yeah, another issue you can sometimes have is just inconsistency. I, I've had this happen where sometimes things seem to work. Sometimes things don't work. And when that happens, the first thing I'll usually check is my drivers, which, again, we also talked about on episode 54, but checking to make sure that your drivers are up to date can help eliminate some of those gremlins. And then, of course, the famous unplug it and plug it back in. This is one, if you, if you use a patch bay, especially like a cheaper patch bay, occasionally, if you have cables plugged into that patch bay, either because of oxidation or something like that, you can just take the, the plugs in and out a couple of times just to kind of pseudo clean them and get better connections there. And sometimes that helps clean up some noise and, and mm. things as well. And in general, your cables, if you have a cable setup where your cables are just permanently plugged in, it's a good idea to pull them out, inspect them sometimes just to make sure that the little pins and connectors aren't oxidized. And you know, even just unplugging them, plugging them back in can sometimes remove some of that little bit of oxidation and help you get better connections established. Going along with that, I had a very interesting, unique problem um, with my computer where it was just booting up. All of a sudden, it just started booting up super slow, and it would take mm. my DAW like between two to five minutes just to start up. Like it was like I was. Oh, yeah running windows what three point whatever it was <laughs> 3.1 on my modern system and i was really at a loss for words so the first the first thing is if you run into issues that become a problem like probably even less than 50 percent of the time but as much as 50 percent of the time i would definitely invest a lot of time and energy into solving them because it is the biggest frustration to have to troubleshoot something that it's not just a problem occasionally, but it's a problem that often, then something is really wrong. Or just get rid of the piece of gear or replace it if it's causing you that many issues. Um, yeah. But from talking to my computer friend, and this is why it's always important for a producer to have a computer friend around if you're not super computer savvy yourself. Um, he, was helping, he was helping me uh, troubleshoot all this through my head. And he mentioned to me, do you have any external hard drives that are plugged in that are old? And I was like, yeah, as a matter of fact, I have an external um, hard drive as a backup drive. And that's about like 
eight years old. He said, try unplugging that and seeing how the system runs. And it fixed it immediately. And he said, sometimes with an old drive, when they start to go bad or start to fail, they get stuck in these boot up, um, uh, boot up uh, program routines. routines where it won't let your computer do all the tasks and boot up because it's looking to that drive to make sure that, okay, this is booted up and acting properly. And if that external drive sometimes can slow the rest of your system down, and that's just something that would have never occurred to me, but I'm glad that he told me because I was like, okay, well then I need to get a new one and replace it. Yeah, I remember you t- talking about that on a, on a real early episode, and, and that definitely stuck with me because um, that's just a good those those little bits of knowledge are good to keep in the back of your brain. Yeah, inevitably, when something like that happens, you're like, oh yeah, I remember Ben had this problem, and because that's like yeah, a, that's a really that's a really interesting one. That's a not intuitive one where you just need somebody that's had yeah. experience to tell you about. Yeah, for sure. Um, we'll talk about hum a little bit. We already talked about a couple of things related to hum but hum can be really frustrating and annoying to troubleshoot so let's just talk about a couple yeah, of possible yeah. reasons there's one thing called ground a ground loop and this is common in home studios and a ground loop if you if you picture your you have all these electrical devices they need electricity to run so they're plugged into various power supplies and those power supplies then have and the devices typically have grounds what the ground does is if you take something like your interface for example your interface has a metal chassis or housing right a metal housing let's say if there's some kind of issue inside of that device like some kind of short or whatever then the housing may actually become electrified and if you touch it, if you've ever had this happen with a guitar amp or something, you touch it, you can actually get a shock. And it's actually dangerous. And so what a lot of these devices then do is they run a ground wire that grounds the housing. And if there are any stray electrical currents or any charges that get built up, that gives those uh, charges a path to ground, which effectively makes the device safe to use. And this is why they say, you know, don't bypass the grounds on your devices that use three prongs. That third prong at the bottom is the ground, and that is what makes the device safe to use from these kind of stray currents and short circuits. But what can happen in a lot of home studios is you may have a bunch of gear. You have your monitors, you have your computer, you have your interface, and you plug all of these devices into different plugs or uh, wall sockets around your house. And some of those sockets may be on different circuits than others if you have like your circuit breakers, right? So if you have a setup where there are multiple grounds going to different locations, you can have what's called a ground loop, which just means you could picture you've created an opportunity for electricity to run from one ground to the other and kind of create this this loop, Hmm. which is bad because that can cause hum. And this is why sometimes you'll see on small devices, like I have a DI box that I use that has a ground lift option. And if you come, if you, if you run into a ground loop issue, sometimes you could take one of those devices and press the ground lift button, and that'll effectively remove one of the grounds from that device, and that eliminates the ground loop. So sometimes you can do that, but what you should never do is eliminate a ground on a power main of something like an amplifier, because you, you do put your health and life at risk. If something goes wrong with that device and you've eliminated the ground, you can really shock yourself badly, like fatally in some cases. That doesn't take a lot of electricity going across your heart to stop your heart. And uh, you're, you're basically rolling the dice at that point if you're letting electricity pass through your body. So I cannot state that enough. Take the hum and figure out a different way. Do not like clip the third plug on your amplifier or something like that. Jeez. Yeah. Great point. It was interesting. I didn't know exactly what the ground lift button actually did. I just know that sometimes if you have a hum issue, hit, click that button on your DI and it'll, it'll solve the problem. Or you'll sometimes right. see them on, um, a couple of my pedals have them too, like effects pedals, yep. where you can hit that button and it'll, it'll, it'll help solve the problem. Another common one that I've run into is 
sometimes if you're, and this is very common for home studios, if you're recording guitar sitting in front of your computer and monitors, sometimes if you're facing the monitor, you get like really bad hum and you actually have mm. to turn your body a little bit. And it has to do, I think, with the electrical interference coming off of your monitors and electrical devices are interfering with the pickups and actually adding hum to your oh, system. That makes sense. I've never thought about that, so, but that makes sense. So just the orientation of your body to your other electronics can sometimes fix that problem. Yeah, and similar with cell phones. I know cell phones can sometimes cause that issue. It reminds me of a Spinal Tap, that, that scene where they're playing at the Air Force Base and the air traffic controller starts coming through <laughs> Nigel Tufnell's guitar amp and he gets because he's got a wireless system. So, oh my gosh. Yeah, that, that can definitely happen. That's a good, that's a good tip. Um, a similar problem to, or an opposite problem to the ground loop problem is if you have not enough ground. So in the example you were saying with um, the guitarist from Nafel, if you're using like a laptop that, that isn't plugged in, you may have a system, like the system I'm using right now actually has no ground. Nothing is grounded in it. And in that case, I could have hum because I have some kind of either interference or, or static buildup that has no way to escape the system effectively. Hmm. So if you have that problem, um, establishing a ground by... I don't know if laptops actually ground through the power charger or not. That would be an interesting question. You might have to look at grounding something like your interface housing. There's something in that system just provided a path to uh, to ground, um, which you might have to do some some legwork or research to figure out how to do that. But just be aware of it for now. And then finally, if you're using um, unbalanced cables when you could be using balanced cables. I forget which episode we talked about this on, but balanced cables have three prong connections or three conductors and unbalanced cables have two conductors. Like a guitar cable is a called a TS cable, tip sleeve. That tip and sleeve are two different conductors as opposed to a TRS cable, which is tip ring sleeve that has three conductors. So balanced connections with three conductors are designed to eliminate a lot of noise that can get picked up by something like radio frequencies. And you can plug a TS cable into a TRS connection. It, it will work, but you're not getting the benefit, the noise canceling benefit of that balanced connection. So you can double check to make sure that uh, most like audio equipment, line level audio equipment has balanced inputs and outputs. So you should try to use balanced cables whenever you can. Good point. Okay, so let's just talk about this this concept of recording and listening back. So we talked about hum. If you have hum, we know some ways to address that. There's also some things just with microphone adjustment that we can, we can troubleshoot as well. These are not all inclusive, but just a couple of quick ones that I like to focus on when I listen back to something I'm recording with a mic. First one is if something is too boomy, we've talked about the proximity effect. If something sounds too boomy, a nice thing to do is just take the microphone and bump it back half an inch or an inch from the source. That can help get rid of some of this proximity effect, which tends to cause low frequency yeah. buildup. That's a great um, one. Feel free to jump in at any time. Sure. Ben. Um, the next one is too roomy. If something sounds too roomy, like it's got too much of the room reverb in it, that's a sign that you have too many reflections going on in your room. So then you can put up some blankets, some pillows. You can just throw, if you're doing like a podcast or vocals or something, you could throw a blanket over your head and the microphone so that basically sound isn't really escaping and getting to the walls. So that's if you have too much of a room sound. I thought, so going along with that, I thought you were going to go in a different direction than you did. That's definitely a way to solve it, but... You can also help that with proximity effect once again. And that's part of the reason why I use this dynamic microphone because even in an untreated space, I'm only an inch away from the diaphragm of this mic. So the ratio of direct sound to room is, is um, 
high enough that I'm getting very little room. That's a great point. Yeah. So that could also be a sign, uh, get closer to the microphone, um, or change microphones. You said the dynamic microphones are much more forgiving typically for uh, room noise than a condenser yeah. microphone. That's actually a really great hack. If you have a bad sounding room or you don't like, or not a treated space, use more dynamic microphones and get directly on the source versus a condenser and farther away is what I'd say. Yeah, absolutely agreed. Next is too hissy. If something is too fizzy or hissy, and again, this is really source agnostic. This is true for whether you're re- uh, recording amps, drums, vocals. This is just general guidelines. If something is too hissy or too fizzy, you can move the microphone off access. So farther from the center of a vocalist's mouth, farther from the center of a guitar amp speaker or whatever else. And similarly for too gusty, if there's if you're using uh, something like, I don't know, a percussion instrument or acoustic guitar, if there's too much just air reaching the diaphragm, you'll get this kind of uh, boomy, gusty sound. Uh, off access will help there as well. So these are just little things we're talking about in a recording session. First take, hit solo, listen back, and make little tweaks. Uh, know, know where to go with, with those microphones. Don't say, I'll just EQ it later because yeah. you, it's, that's, that should be a last resort. You'll have much better, more fun and better results if you fix it with mic positioning. The, the, my final thing on mics is just think about the microphone as a flashlight. Where is it shining? So you're getting too much fret noise, point the mic farther away from the fretboard right? Yeah. <laughs> you want more fret noise, point it closer to the fretboard. So think of it as kind of like a flashlight that has a, a cone of light uh, emanating from it. What other things do you do, Ben, during a recording session as you're listening back? What are some common problems you're solving or common moves you're making? I've had this problem that's come up a couple times. It actually got me in some trouble, but I found other workarounds. Um, let's say I have multiple mics on a guitar bass cab. I'm recording, everything looks great, it's awesome. I go to listen back or inspect, and I'm like, hmm, that waveform from the second and third mic look almost identical, and only to find out that I selected the same source for both tracks, so I... On your DAW, right? Yep. Same input. Yeah. yeah. So I wound up not recording one of the microphones and double recording another one. Mm. And there's a variety of reasons as to why that happened. One is I initially set up everything good and then I grouped the tracks because I wanted to edit them in a group, but I adjusted the inputs and it adjusted to make all of the inputs the same at the same group. Yeah. So that's just tricky things to look out for. And actually... I messed that up on a recording because I had the first half of the song was all correctly recorded. And then the second half, I only recorded a DI. And so I wound up having to scrap all the mics and just use the DI, which gotcha. thankfully sounded better or would it would have been what I would have gone with at the end anyways. The mics were just there for the fun of it. But I mean, that can really get you into some problems if you're... Um, specifically trying to get a mic'd tone. Yeah, that's a that's a great point. So looking at the waveforms is important. Just visually, sometimes you can identify things like this mic is way louder than the other mic. I have a level issue. Or the waveforms look the same. I'm recording the same mic. And this is where labeling becomes uh, super critical as well because uh, in your if you just have like audio one, yeah audio two and then you're like was this which mic was that right exactly um additionally especially when i'm recording drums i don't quite do things the same way as when i started but when i first started recording drums uh, i had a limited number of mics sometimes i had to pick and choose what mics were going to what input on my interface because 
uh, I had overheads that needed phantom power, so I specifically needed them in a slot that had phantom power. But also, I wanted them to plug into the uh, 10 dB pad because otherwise the drummer was going to peak my microphones even on the lowest gain setting. So I would do some creative and confusing things like plugging my overheads into the first two inputs on my interface because they had the 10 dB pad and then my kick drums would come next and then my snare. So it wasn't an ideal setup, but I did it because I knew that if I don't do it this way, if I just plug in my mics based off of the order that I would want to work with it in mixing in my DAW, you know, kick, snare, all the toms, then the overheads. That's the way I would want to organize it when mixing, but I have to do it in a different way because then I'm going to have to worry about doing all these retakes because the drummer's playing so loud and peaking. Yeah. Yeah. And that's where that, that extra level of organization is, is crucial because if you've taken the time the day before yeah. to label all those tracks and color code and you, all your inputs are set, it's going to be a better day than if you're like, I got to create three new tracks here, audio one, audio two, I'll name them later. And you know, you're just kind of going by the seat of your pants. That will inevitably cause you a lot of regret. At least it has for me. <laughs> yeah. I don't know how many people out there are recording drums, but I would suggest taking one shots of all, uh, at least of the snare, but it's a good idea to take one shots of all the drums in particular. And all that means is just, you know, record the drummer just doing a solo hit. Uh, and you can do different velocity levels, but just a good solid hit on the snare. And then that way you have like a perfect, like an essentially perfect drum hit uh, that you can use that to splice in or even blend in as a sample later. But it's just a nice idea to have like a perfect isolated hit just in case let's say there's a bad um there's a bad snare hit in the song where he hit the mic or she hit the mic when they were playing the snare drum and mm -hmm. now you could maybe grab that from you could maybe easily grab that from another place in the song but you normally have noise from other drums and cymbals ringing out so sometimes it can be nice to have that perfect take so that, that's a nice transition then for kind of the last bit of notes I have, which is the post-production stuff. Um, troubleshooting, common troubleshooting tips for after the session. Um, one mm. thing that's I find myself troubleshooting a lot of times is you're listening back to all of the stems. And you can tell there's a rhythmic issue, but it's not always obvious what's responsible for it. And so again, here a methodical approach really helps. I think it's good to pick a rhythmic anchor for your track and stick with it. So for, you know, usually it's bass or drums, but it could be whoever has the best <laughs> rhythmic sense in that band or whoever's playing, you know, the, um, uh, the most rhythmic parts, which usually is the drums. But let's say you've picked the drums and said, this is my rhythmic anchor. I'm going to compare every other track to the drums alone without other things playing. And uh, if, I, if I hear a rhythmic issue, that's what I'll do. I'll solo the drums, and then I'll solo the bass with the drums. Does that part sound tight? Okay, then I'll turn the bass off, solo the guitar. Does that sound tight to the drums? And kind of go through it like that, and usually you can shake out, ah, it's this guitar. It sounds fine on its own, yeah. but it doesn't match the drums, and that's what usually triggers you to do a little bit of, of editing on rhythm if you have to. The first time I ran into this issue that you're talking about was when I was recording my brother-in-law's band. And I think from a idealistic point of view, I was thinking if I get everybody to track to a click track, even if they're not the best at playing with a click or, or playing in time, if I can get everybody to play along with the most idealistic uh, timekeeping device, which is a metronome, then it's going to sound better at the end than if I, let's say, have the drummer play to the click and then have the bass player play to the drummer and then all the other instruments play. Because the way I was thinking about it is 
Well, his time is going to be relative to the metronome. And so everybody else's time is going to be relative to the drummer. And so it'll just keep getting farther and farther off. That's the way I was thinking about it. Yep. But in reality, when I tried to do it that way, I feel like it gave me more problems uh, at the end than if I had just had everybody kind of play off of one another. And the reason for that is, is because everybody has their own way that they kind of hear rhythm and hear time. Some people play in front of the beat, some people play on the beat, and some people kind of play behind the beat. It's not that there, any one of those is right or wrong. It's just the way that people kind of feel rhythm. And so what you would wind up having is, uh, I recorded the drummer who tended to play behind the beat, and then I recorded the guitar player who tended to play in front of the beat. And so then the discrepancy was even wider because mm. they weren't playing off of one another, which would be a more natural way to play as a musician. They're playing off of this theoretical timekeeping device and it made the discrepancy so much more so what i would say is it depends on the person you're recording whether it's you or somebody else and how they respond to rhythm and time because for me when i track something i like to record everything to a click i think it sounds better i think that also has to do with i've practiced a lot of recording with a click but for some people, it might actually be better to record them playing off of one another than a click track. What do you think about that? Yeah, it depends. Absolutely, I agree. I think it depends on how comfortable the musicians are playing together and how good the rhythm is. I mean, if the if they have a mediocre drummer, if your band has a mediocre drummer, then you may be better suited by having everybody record to the click and then editing the bejesus out of the drums later if you have to. Uh, but in general, the the message is the same. It's pick your rhythmic anchor, whatever yeah. the backbone of your song is, whether it's a drummer or whether it's a click track, and just go with that Then have a single reference point. So, yeah, I think that's a valid point. Um, yes, another thing, just mute and solo are two very different tools used for very different things. It may sound obvious, but uh, one thing to do is, or one common problem we're finding is like, similar like something is rhythmically off or like there's something boomy or muddy or messy here and i can't tell what it is the way i like to deal with that is by going through and muting and unmuting one track at a time mm -hmm. and in fact i'll even start not at the track level but at the bus level so let's say i'll mute my whole guitar bus did the problem go away or did it remain if it remained, you know, unmute the guitars and I'll go mute the next bus, the bass bus or whatever other buses I have. Mute the reverb track, whatever. Go one by one, mute and unmute until the mm. problem goes away when you hit mute. That tells you then what track you need to focus on where the problem is. Because You know, you might think, well, I'm going to mute everything and I'm going to start soloing tracks. But everything might sound fine in solo. You don't know right. what's causing a muddy problem and the way you solve problems in the mix is very different than the way you solve problems for an individual track right so you might find when i mute this one track my problem goes away i'm gonna high pass that track way more than i would think i have to if i was soloing that track but it's gonna help clean up my mix great point i don't know if i have too much to add to that uh it is interesting that you brought up that it's two different tools used for two different purposes and when I think about how I use mute and solo, uh, normally mute is I want to mute everything else and build build the tracks up uh, to make sure everything's playing good with one another. So I'll mute everything mm -hmm. and then unmute the drums, unmute the bass, unmute the guitars. So I'll kind of go in that order as I'm building up. The way I normally use solo is just to highlight something to... If I feel like I hear something that's going on or I want to focus in, then I'll use the solo. But yeah, mm -hmm. that's, that's a good point of, as far as using them. And I definitely do use them in two different ways. They're not interchangeable. Right. Cool. I'm almost done here. And it looks like we got a, we're at a good length anyway. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Just another thing on like inconsistent low end. Mm. You and I just recorded that episode with Brandon, uh, the DIY sound library where we were talking about bass. And when one thing we didn't 
talk about, but is a, is a common problem for home studios is I see so many pictures of people's studios where their monitors are right against the wall and that might be okay. Depends on your room dimensions and a a couple of other things, but you can get weird base buildups or base cuts from having your monitors too close to a back wall. And if you're finding that your mixes, the low end sounds way different from one room to another room or from one device to another device, that's one thing you, you want to try to solve. You want to keep a couple of feet, if possible, uh, between your wall and the backs of the monitors. Yeah, I agree. I think the same thing goes for even recording s- sources like bass amps. Um, get them away from the corners of the room because you can capture that bass buildup into a mic. And uh, it's not all bad either, though. You can leverage that to your advantage. Uh, we did that in my old band where we rec- we recorded all my bass amp takes with an SM57 and the low end was just massive because we had the bass amp in the corner of the room where the buildup was crazy. And we just... I love it. We, we leveraged it like that on purpose. So you can use it to your benefit, but I would say more often than not, it's a problem, not a solution. Yeah, no, that that's a really good point. Yeah, you can you can definitely use that to your advantage. I mean, it's it's kind of it it's kind of like proximity effect. Mm-hmm. It's a different principle, but you can definitely leverage that if you're like, look, I only have this uh SM57 and I want a massive low end, like yeah, you can use some acoustic trickery to to help build that up. That's a cool trick. I love it. Yeah. Cool, man. Well, you got anything else to add here on troubleshooting and debugging? Yeah, maybe, I think maybe the only thing I wanted to add is a a bit more philosophy at the end. Uh, Just with, you know, we're we're bringing up all, we're mentioning all these troubleshooting methods. And granted, you can't necessarily know that you're going to have a problem until you face a problem. So sometimes it's impossible to um, plan ahead for it. But the best thing that you can do to help keep your frustration low is to plan ahead as much as possible so if you know that um even if you're just recording yourself uh because i i can remember being super frustrated on going into a project or thinking man i'm going to use this whole weekend all day saturday that's my recording day i'm looking forward to it because i've got a busy week you know with either the kids or uh at work whatever it might be um and then you turn on your computer and something doesn't work. And that's just the biggest Debbie Downer of all time. And so all I'd say yeah. is maybe some things that you can do is, uh, and I do this all the time even in my studio business, is I like to the night before prep my sessions for work the next day. And that's a great way to simultaneously you separate your like um, your task-oriented brain uh, to work on a separate at a separate time or a separate day than your creative flow state on the next day, and it also kind of gives you it gives you a buffer to solve any problems that might come up that night before, uh, instead of having to work through the frustration of dealing with it on the day that you plan to get a lot of stuff done. So, yeah, totally agree. I think that's a that's a great note to end it on. Awesome, man. Well, this has been fun and I can't wait to apply some of these tools that we learned to uh, our workflow. Yes, yes. Troubleshooting is, uh, it's a necessary part. It's like diet and exercise. You you just, you got to do it eventually. (laughs) Yeah. You know what? I will also give a shout out to our community and say, if you guys know of any, uh, this is the DIY guys, uh, DIY recording guys community on Facebook. So if you're not a member yet, please join up. And uh, if you guys know any troubleshooting things that maybe you've run into or you've solved that have helped you, please post it in the community. We'd love to hear and get a discussion going about that. Absolutely. All right. Well, until next time, it's the DIY recording guys reminding you to check yourself before you wreck yourself.
you're enjoying the podcast, take a minute to leave a rating wherever you like to listen to it or share it with your friends on social media. Also, Benjamin and I are working engineers and we love helping people turn ideas into finished productions. So if you're interested in working with one of us or just want to discuss a project you're working on, reach out. You can find my work at calmfrogrecording.com. Get me on Instagram at calmfrogrecording or shoot me an email, vk at calmfrogrecording.com. And you can check Benjamin's workout at dreamloudstudio.com. Hit him up on Instagram at dreamloudstudio or by email, ben at dreamloudstudio.com. And finally, join our Facebook group to engage with a whole group of friendly, like-minded people who are interested in DIY recording. Just search for DIY Recording Guys on Facebook. Thank you so much for listening and for your continued support. I'll see you next week.